from the start, I knew that I wanted the Sunday to feel kind of like an email version of a magazine. You have a big, bold animation up top, lots of visuals, original reporting. And, you know, we explored all different types of stories. We did stories on lottery heists and the economics of just ridiculous things like all-you-can-eat buffets. We profiled the guy who has monopoly on cleaning IMAX screens all over the United States. Um, and I think the, the beat of tech and business is so broad that it really lends itself to a, um, a, an exciting variety of stories. Welcome back to Media Voices, everybody. We take a look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that clip you just heard was from my interview with Zachary Crockett. He's the principal reporter and Sunday editor for The Hustle. So he talked about his career path working across radio, newsletters, journalism and data, how he makes the long-form Sunday issues must-reads for The Hustle's business audience and launching a daily podcast. Before then, though, we're going to get into our main story, and it is basically an encapsulation of everything that we have said about VC-funded news, and in fact, publicly traded news companies over the past couple of years. Because, as reported by CNBC and a number of other outlets, investors want BuzzFeed News shut down. So last week, we heard that the BuzzFeed News app was going away. Um, They were very keen to stress that, in fact, the spirit of the BuzzFeed News app was going to be continued. But this week, we heard that BuzzFeed News itself is potentially on its way out. So the head of BuzzFeed News and two other top editors are departing the company ahead of massive cuts to the newsroom. Where have we heard that before? So BuzzFeed News is said to be losing roughly $10 million a year. Let me ask you this first. Based on how BuzzFeed has treated news operations over the past couple of years, is this particularly surprising to you? No, not at all. (laughs) <laughs> okay. All right. It's um, just been exacerbated by the fact that now as a publicly traded company, investors can actually point this out, <laughs> make demands of it. I, th- I think now it's maybe that pressure is just much more public than it ever was before. I'm sure the, pr- I'm sure the pressure was already there from the rapacious capitalist bastards that were funding BuzzFeed in the first place. Mm. But now it's public. Now he's, you know, they can come out and they can say, well, we own some of this. So, do it. Fix well, stuff. they actually allegedly said that shutting down the newsroom would add up to $300 million in market cap, which I think well, is it's, about it's, as... It's because they, they said it was to the struggling stock. And I think this is kind of part of the issues that BuzzFeed's yeah, public debut has not gone anything near mm. as well as they hoped. And I think if it had, this would, well, we wouldn't be talking about this. Yeah, exactly. So, that, I mean, there's there's a couple of ways we can come at this. I think that the, the primary one and the, the response I've seen on Twitter from a number of people was that the BuzzFeed news angle was actually what got a lot of advertisers, potential brand sponsors and partners in the door. So it's not necessarily that it was completely loss-making because it acted as effective antenna to the rest of kind of BuzzFeed's operation. So it, it was an attractive proposition to advertisers. It just wasn't reflected in where the money was actually made. Mm. My point is the people that are putting the money into this, these investors, whether they ever knew it, they've certainly forgotten how news works. Yeah. (laughs) This isn't fucking rocket science. No one's invented this. This is how newspapers work forever. Still do. Yeah. Yeah. I said that further down the dock. It's it's unimaginable to me that people could look (laughs) at this and go, what do you mean the news side didn't make any profit? What do you mean that was coming from like advertising and everything? Well, why don't we jettison everything apart from the advertising then? That just makes so much sense. 
What's it? It's the perfect. It's a perfect storm of stupid. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, it's that they're only looking at the bottom line. That's pretty stupid. It's all driven by traffic numbers, so that's pretty stupid because there's a lot more nuance to just straight up numbers. And then <laughs> ignoring the fact of the attention that you get for winning a Pulitzer. But actually, I I, th- I think that's almost where the the strategy has fallen down a bit here. And I know when um, when they first announced BuzzFeed News, like, I remember talking about this on the podcast, gosh, rolled. Um, but I can remember talking about this and there was always this doubt that would they ever be able to separate the the award-winning news from the cat gif reputation? And uh, they haven't, you know, they've always really struggled with that, which is why, which is why when, um, when they acquired HuffPosts, we were all like, okay, you know, is this the opportunity where they're going to almost bring that, you know, that, that talent, the investment, the staff, combine it with HuffPost and you've got a power operation there. If they'd have made different decisions three years ago, it, it would be a very different story now. Here's the thing that I think that you would get a lot of people who would argue that actually BuzzFeed News did stand reputationally on its own two feet. I think the issue... I, In I don't spite of not... Well, I've heard, I have been at some uh, conferences in the past where BuzzFeed News employees have introduced themselves by referencing the cat gift stuff. So even internally, there wasn't quite as clear a delineation as they might have wanted. But, you know, I can remember some of the stuff they've broken and, and like, serious, serious people being like, mm-hmm. oh, BuzzFeed, like, why, why should we trust them? And it, it comes back to this trust thing that, yes, you know, they did amazing work. Yes, they got media people respect and media people knew kind of what had gone on with the business. But when you're talking to people who don't perhaps yeah. know that, they hear yeah. they hear BuzzFeed, they see, you know, yeah. the the lol stickers, and you're then asking them to trust scoops yeah, yeah. on some really, oh, yeah, like, true. some of the stuff they broke in British politics was huge. Yeah. But the first reaction for a lot of people was, well, why should we believe BuzzFeed? Do you know, um, you know those diagrams you get for the ad tech ecosystem? What are they call? Yeah, the uh, Yeah, the Lumosphere. So I've seen one of those for news. Mm. And BuzzFeed wasn't too too much higher up Breitbart on that on that chart, which is obviously nuts, is nonsense. Yeah, but it does talk to the kind of public perception, and that maybe was part of the problem. I don't know. Well, but actually, I mean, but, you know what? But I'm talking myself, Esther. You're absolutely 100 percent right. <laughs> but that is not the problem here. No, and I think I think my thing is that it's not. This is not the result of the reputational problem. This is the result of not taking the opportunity to strengthen yeah. the HuffPost newsroom when they acquired it a couple of years ago. Agreed. I mean, you you only got to look at the way they're approaching this. He's, Peretti has talked about uh, prioritising yeah. investments around coverage of the biggest news of the day, culture and entertainment, uh, celebrity and life on the internet. So there's the focus for BuzzFeed News going forward. And what's really telling, Aaron Zucker-Scharf, who's, I can't remember his Twitter handle, he, he's very insightful. And he says that the, the kind of proof of this one is, what, in case you're wondering what type of news BuzzFeed considers unprofitable and not worth investing in, the layout, the, the redundancy offer is only available to reporters and editors who cover investigations, inequality, politics, or science. So that's the people that are out the door. Yeah. If you happen to be covering uh, Dua Lipa's latest single release or what she was wearing on the catwalk, you're golden. Mm. 
I mean, that so that phrase will prioritize investments around coverage of the biggest news of the day. Um, they're going to focus on profitable news segments. Profitable Isn't the news point segments? that it's loss-making, so it's not profitable. It's just slightly less loss-making. It, it's clicks and ads. It, it's, it'll be yeah, focusing exactly. on what will get them the most traffic. They've yes. fallen into every single trap that most digital medias learn not to from like the 2010s. Mm. Just time and time again, he's he's just he's trying to head back towards that time, and it's like, no, we, have we not learned any of the lessons here? Well, what was it? What was your point about Facebook, Esther? Oh gosh, um, I, I love a bit of Facebook gossip, but this this I think was particularly interesting. So, um, in the earnings call, he kept Peretti kept making references to the fact that their audience has shifted off Facebook, like. Um, well, I'll put a link into to the to the tweet basically that highlighted it. Um, so it's had a huge impact on their commerce revenues. They've declined twenty six percent due to their audience shifting off Facebook. Um, I can imagine this is probably also impacting the news side because I mean the audience is sort of people my age, um, you know, the sort of quote millennial audience. And yeah, he just says that they've noticed huge portions of the audience just don't spend time on Facebook anymore, and as a result, their traffic, their e commerce, everything they rely on has just dropped off a cliff and, and Facebook was their, yeah, that, that was where they'd gone as a social media platform. That was where they built their audience. Um, so Peretti sort of said, you know, we need to look at building those audiences elsewhere. Yeah, doing that five years ago, mate. <laughs> you know, what was kind of interesting about this, do you remember not too long ago, he set out his nine boxes of where uh, BuzzFeed's focus was going to be. And it was stuff like one of them was e-commerce, big drive for that. But none of it seemed in retrospect, none of it was like, Oh, we need to, more carefully think about our distribution strategy. It so all of the, those nine boxes were built on this one uh, social media strategy, which obviously has now come undone. So it's it's fine to talk about your your kind of ambitions and what you want to do, but if those foundations are less than rock solid, but it then can be taken away. You know they they had this news app and they've gone and shut that down because it wasn't achieving the sort of numbers that they wanted to do. And again, that's not that's not the point mm-hmm. of news apps and this is something other publishers have, have learned really well is that the apps will never get you millions and millions and millions of readers and users and traffic and ads and all that sort of thing. the apps are for the loyal people and they are the retention play but that leads kind of nicely on to what i think is going to be the final point we're going to make on this which is that unfortunately this is now raised the specter of that question again which is can you do a digital native news operation profitably and effectively and i've seen a number of people saying absolutely you still can which I think is right, but not necessarily at scale potentially, but it's now again raised the idea that if BuzzFeed News can't do it with all their awards and all the resources of BuzzFeed behind them, who can? Don't think BuzzFeed were the best set up to do this and they've not played the hand particularly well on it. Mm-hmm. I yeah, don't- I don't think they prove it. They don't, they don't disprove the model and that's good. Yeah. I, I just spoke to uh, Yahoo uh, for next week. And one of the things that they talked about is the the aggregation aspect of what they do. They bring a lot of stuff together from a lot of different people, and it's interesting because that was that's beyond old school. Yeah, um, but it was working for them. Did you did you see that Donald Trump Jr. is launching a new conservative uh, focused yeah. news aggregator yeah, site? Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Why don't we ask News dot com how that worked out? Well, it depends how you approach it, though, right? No. <laughs> well, Yahoo's got 900 million people a, a month. 
a day, well, a month. Exactly. Remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're Yahoo, and now any new outlet. Oh, I get your yeah, point. Is Sorry. going up against the yeah, 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 of yeah, Yahoo yeah. and Google and all the other aggregators. hundred uh, percent. And now the news in brief. And Thursday's newsletter, Esther ran a piece about how having your own brand is key to survival for journalists. Um, and it absolutely is. And publishers need to find a way to work with the staff on this. But <laughs> how they manage that and what, you know, I've said before, they, they should set guides, but what those guides are and whatever, they, they, you know, they, they've, they've, they've got to have a framework, but they need to just love their staff and let them be free on this one. I see what I think is interesting is that you said, oh, we could maybe get into a shouting match in this one, but I think we just all agree. <laughs> like, we do all agree. I, I I don't have a, but I have a, an addition to this. And Peter, actually you flagged this on Twitter early in the week is that I was all like, yeah, let your staff be free. Let them like fly and, and grow and be wonderful. Um, and, then, and then you sent that piece over about the, um, the cuts, uh, one of the cuts journalists oh, yeah. who um, started taking brand sponsorship deals as part mm-hmm. of his like sort of journal influencer status that suddenly gets very, very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I feel for publishers on this because they do need to set guidelines. But equally, they need to just let people get on with it because, or basically because they have no option. I remember, I don't know if I've said this before, years and years and years ago, when I was actually in charge of people in a publication, every now and then someone would come and say, can I do some freelance work? And I always said yes. Because mm. I always thought, this makes you a better member of staff for me. It gives you different perspectives and it gets you out in the industry and it brings something back. And I think there's part of that with the social media. And my pick today is that Future PLC has acquired, yet again, um, two social media companies. So What Culture is a social first brand which is focused on the gaming and entertainment market and Wave, which is like Wave. Um, (laughs) Say that again. (laughs) Wave. I, th- I think you probably say wave. <laughs> um, so that's like a data insight startup which uses machine learning to identify social trends ahead of sort of them hitting the mainstream. Um, what culture I think is quite an interesting one. I've not, I've not come across it before, but it does a lot of YouTube content. It's got like sort of 8 million subscribers, 4 billion views. Um, I mean, Chris, you've written qu- quite a bit about futures push into gaming and entertainment recently, haven't you? So I, mm-hmm. I, I assume this sort of aligns in that way. So yeah, this very much kind of aligns with their whole research side, which then informs the editorial side. It makes sense to me. I love the fact that Esther was still able to be surprised by this announcement. <laughs> I love that. Just kind of paints the picture of the industry that we've lived in for however many years. Future is just on a tear though, aren't they? It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, if you thought Paul Dacre not getting the role of the Ofcom chair meant that the BBC would be spared the wrath of angry old white men, then you need to think again. Because as Jane Martinson points out in an excellent op-ed this week for The Guardian, the government's chosen candidate, Michael Grade, is just as big a threat to the BBC as Dacre would have been. However, she does point out that at least uh, Grade has some broadcast experience, so silver linings. So it's a very, very good read if you want to understand the cynicism, if you want to understand the cynicism behind the attempts to stifle the BBC. I think that's the point in this one. It's not whether it's Lou Grade. I'm sorry, Lou Grade was his dad, wasn't he? Michael yeah. Grade. Uh, Jesus Christ, I'm so old. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not whether Michael Grade gets it, although Dacre again, it would have been horrendous. But it's about the process. The process for this is just torturous. And it's awful. And 
there's no good to be, can come of it the way it's set up at the minute. I'll find isn't it. I'll that, find it slightly more upbeat place. Isn't to it in the news, you're not supposed to say. And finally, a cat was rescued from a tree. Yeah. This week's guest is the Hustle Sunday editor Zachary Crockett. As well as writing for the newsletter, he also creates all the visuals and animations. He's one of the Hustle's podcast hosts, and he also hosts and produces a show for the Free Economics Radio Network. I mean, that's quite a range of different skills. That's to be pretty juggling. good, yeah. Yeah. So I actually started by asking him how his career path brought him to that point. Well, my dream as a kid, uh, my dream job as a kid was to have a thousand different jobs. Uh, I never wanted one job. Not many kids have that dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as I got older, I realized that, um, you know, journalism can kind of do that for you. Uh, every day, it feels like you have a new job sometimes. Um, so I got into newspaper in, in high school and college. Um, I graduated into kind of a post-recession economy, and I took a job as an editorial assistant at a big textbook publisher. And I remember sitting in these meetings just debating which shade of gray to use for a chart in a math textbook <laughs> and uh, questioning my decision. Uh, I made like $26,000 a year, and um, I kind of just I worked there for a few years, saved up some money and traveled around South America for a while. And when I came back, I decided that I really wanted to give writing a shot. So I worked all these odd jobs. I was a baker, a tutor. Uh, I played guitar in a touring blues band. And um, all the while, I was kind of applying to these writing jobs on Craigslist and pitching stories. And I must have sent out two, 300 emails. And finally, this tiny blog called Priceonomics gave me a shot. And the guy who ran it, Rohin Dar, was really my first mentor. He was this huge data journalism nerd. But he also really let me run with these long narrative human interest stories. So I kind of inadvertently started combining data and long-form reporting. So one week I would write like a 6,000-word story on the economics of professional bowling. Uh, and then the next week I'd be doing a data analysis on rent increases in San Francisco. Um, so we, we kind of turned that into a brand and grew this small cult following and we published a few books and we started getting more attention from bigger publishers. Um, so I, I worked there for about two years. I really honed my, my data analysis chops and my writing chops. Um, and then one day I opened my inbox and I saw an email from one of my media heroes at the time, Ezra Klein. Um, he had just launched Vox.com, and he asked me if I wanted to come out and join the team. So I got on a plane to D.C. in 2016, and I ended up working at Vox uh, during the most bizarre presidential election in U.S. <laughs> history. Um, and, and at Vox, uh, I was put on this special multimedia team that blended long-form journalism, visuals, data, and video. And I had some really, truly incredible guidance from Sarah Cliff, who's now an investigative reporter at the New York Times, and Javier Zaracina, who was probably one of the best visual journalists in media, I think. Um, I just learned so much about how to tell stories in different formats. Um, but after a while, I kind of had this career dilemma, and I realized that I wasn't really a strict news reporter. I was more interested in being a generalist and storytelling. At the same time, newsletters were starting to emerge as kind of a new thing in media, and I wanted to learn more about the business model. So I reached out to Sam Parr at The Hustle and ended up joining the team where I've been for the last four years. 
And uh, yeah, I guess, you know, through this entire journey, I've been fortunate enough to dabble in radio, podcasting, film and television work. Um, and I think it's it's mainly because um, I've been fortunate enough to to flex my generalist muscles and kind of focus more on these cinematic stories that translate better into different formats. Yeah, this this idea of a, of a sort of, it's not a portfolio career, but a, a career where you do lots of different roles, it's quite a sort of trendy one at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that there's a place for that alongside depth? Um, I, I know a lot of publishers still mm-hmm. sort of prefer people who can go really deep into a role and, and, and are specialists. Do, do you think there's room for both in a, in a publisher? I think that's a great question. Um, you know, a lot of media companies kind of have a volumetric approach where they have the reporters write five to 10 stories a week. Mm. Uh, you know, you might have an hour to file a story. And I understand the value there, but my philosophy has always been to just write one or two really good things each week, uh, go really deep on them. And actually, there's an argument to be made on the metric side of things. I've found that the more time I invest in a story, the better it does. And I'm able to get as much traffic with one story as I might by writing seven to 10 shorter stories that maybe aren't as thought through or as deep or impactful. Um, So I I think that I I would encourage media companies to allow the reporters to uh, have a little bit more time to flex on deeper stories. There's a business argument to be made. For younger reporters and journalists looking at going into the industry, do you think that that mix of skills, like a wide range of skills, is something that they should be looking to develop? Absolutely. I, I think we're seeing a big shift in media right now. Uh, there's a convergence of the creator economy and journalism, and and yeah. younger generations are getting their news on Twitter and TikTok, and people are increasingly subscribing to individuals rather than media brands, whether that's you know through a Substack, a Patreon, or a YouTube channel. And to compete for eyeballs in those arenas, you really need a robust toolkit of skills. This is obviously just my opinion, but I, I'd strongly advise any young journalist to learn how to analyze their own data and make their own visuals. I use a mashup of Excel and Photoshop for my work, but there are so many great free tools out there um, like, you know, Infogram, Data Wrapper, Flourish, it just makes things um, a lot more achievable uh, now to to kind of start to build a more robust toolkit as a reporter. Yeah. So your current role at The Hustle, I, th- I think The Hustle is fairly well known, but um, could you just sort of give an overview of what, what you do there? Sure. So I run our Sunday email, which is our long form original reporting arm. And it's just one email that comes out on every Sunday in your inbox. Uh, it's usually 2,000 words or so. Uh, it combines Ooh. animations, visuals, um, and usually entails anywhere from 6 to 15 interviews. Um, and uh, yeah, we just go deep on one topic every week. So how did the idea for that come about? Because I think in sort of old school media, there was this idea that you had, uh, you know, your, your Sunday read, your, your long weekend edition um, that went really deep into something. Is that what mm-hmm. sort of informed the idea of this newsletter? Yeah, you know, when I first joined The Hustle, we were just a Monday through Friday newsletter, and it was largely curation based, you know, roundups of the top business news and um 
a few months in, I started laying out a case for what I thought we should really lean into, uh, original reporting. And we were trying to grow out our subscriber list at the time. I think we were around 150,000 subscribers. And, you know, my theory was that we should be able to use storytelling as a driver of organic growth. So from the start, I knew that I wanted the Sunday to feel kind of like an email version of a magazine. You have a big, bold animation up top, lots of visuals, original reporting. And, you know, we explored all different types of stories. We did stories on lottery heists and the economics of just ridiculous things like all-you-can-eat buffets. We profiled the guy who has monopoly on cleaning IMAX screens all over the United States. Um, and I think the, the beat of tech and business is so broad that it really lends itself to a, um, a, an exciting variety of stories. How on earth do you come up with the ideas of some of these things? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I get asked that a lot. I think, so I have a few tricks I use. Um, one tool that I would highly recommend to any journalist is new, newspapers.com. It's this like really great archive of newspaper clippings going back 200 years. And you can just pour through these old newspapers and see what the top business stories were in like 1972. And what, like, what was the big controversy going on? What were people talking about? And then you can kind of revamp that and uh, talk about it in a new light. You know, one example would be like, the the Beanie Babies bubble in the 90s, you had this manic craze to collect these little bags filled with beans. And there's kind of a parallel there to, you know, cryptocurrency, some some might argue. So you could revamp an old story from an archive and tie it in with something that's happening now. Um, another trick I use is I just, I'm a huge fan of Facebook groups. I'm a member of like 200 Facebook groups. <laughs> um, if I'm interviewing if I'm writing a story about the economics of gas stations, I'll go and join 10 groups with gas station owners where they're just discussing their daily lives. Like, you know, how much they make on a tank of gas or what their profit margin is on a bag of chips or something. Um, so I, I join tons of Facebook groups and I kind of embed myself into those communities to learn more. I know this sounds simple, but I also just go for walks without my phone. Uh, just look around and be present every day. And I think you'll see things around you that might seem banal on the surface, but there, there are interesting stories behind anything, whether it's, you know, a, a stop sign or, um, you know, a, 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 a truck that drives around picking up dog poop. Like there's an interesting business model behind all these things around us in daily life. So I think if you're curious enough and you keep your eyes open, you'll see things around you. To be honest, if I was a member of that many Facebook groups, I'd want to go and walk without <laughs> my phone as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can get a little overwhelming uh, logging in and just seeing, you know, feeds of exotic aquarium pets and uh, Gosh, yes. <laughs> gas station <laughs> stuff. Um, so is, is that grown, because it's 1.5 million subscribers that's now got, has that just grown entirely organically? Yeah, in the early days, you know, we leaned on Facebook ads and, you know, more traditional um, growth methods, but it's largely been organic. I, we just actually passed 2 million subscribers for the first time. And I think a, a big part of that I would like to think is this focus on original storytelling that really spreads outside of the email and attracts new demographics. 
Yeah. And the the Monday to Friday email is sort of quite business focused and I assume many much of your audience are typical nine to five business people. What are the sort of open rates, read rates like at the weekend? Like do people is that something people intentionally open on a Sunday or do you tend to find that they sort of come to it Monday morning when they're starting work again for the week? Mm-hmm. We thought this was going to be a huge issue at first. Um, we weren't really sure what the readership would be on a Sunday, but our open rates on Sunday are actually just as high, if not higher than a weekday. Um, I get a lot of notes from people saying the Sunday email is kind of ritualistic. They, they read it in the morning with their coffee or while they're walking their dog. So it's kind of like the Sunday funnies for adults. Um, <laughs> and, um, it is interesting. Um, I, we, we, we also do get a lot of opens on Monday when those people come into the office again, but, um, usually we see a big spike in traffic on Sunday when the story is published and I'll know just looking at Google analytics and the metrics, whether a story is going to hit or not that same day. That's too many people on their work emails at the weekend. I think. Yeah. Way too many. Yeah. So what sort of personal audience do you have in mind when you're writing your pieces? Well, we've always said, you know, our audience is young professionals, just marketers, salespeople, engineers, entrepreneurs. A lot of them own businesses or maybe aspire to own one someday. But I do think, um, I think a mistake a lot of other newsletters with a similar following make is that they assume that marketers only want marketing related content. They have this idea in their head that marketers just want to sit around and read about SEO tactics all day. (laughs) Um, But, you know, marketers are like anyone else. They want a good story. They love to read about the economics of any machines or investigations on Amazon fake reviews or stories about wine frauds. Um, So um, I I think, you know, our, our audience is young professionals and we do have a focus on business and tech news, but we do our best to really broaden the definitions of what both of those things mean and just focus on good storytelling at the end of the day. Do you think newsletters have sort of had their moment now or do you think there's still some more mileage to go for them? (laughs) Well, it's funny. um, All of the people, a lot of the folks who have been really successful with newsletters in the past three or four years are now saying, are now advising most people not to get into newsletters. They think it's the wave is kind of over and they're saying, you know, the space is too crowded. Don't get in. But we heard people saying this about podcasts like three or four years ago. And now podcasts are having this kind of second wave regrowth. Um, we've heard about the pivot to video for eight years and people are still Uh. pivoting to video now. So, um, you know, I I don't think the wave is over. I think Substack is, has obviously started a new iteration of this movement that is focused on empowering individual creators hopefully I think it's here to stay. I, I mean, who knows, but, um, there is something very valuable about having that very, very direct line of communication with your readers. Um, I don't have to publish a story online and just pray that it's going to get clicks. I, I know for sure when I put a story out that eight or 900,000 people will open that email and read it. And, that's a very powerful thing as a journalist to have that guaranteed built-in audience. You've had some um, articles as well be licensed for TV and film as well, haven't you? Yeah, that you know, that's interesting. Like, I think um, that's another big kind of parallel boom that's happening right now. You know, um, Netflix and Hulu and all of these subscription services are investing so heavily 
in original content. And they're starting to really reach into the depths. They're going beyond the New Yorker and the Atlantic, and they're starting to dig into the kind of second tier underground blogs when they're hunting for stories. And, um, you know, a lot of the stories of option have been discovered through the work I've done on smaller blogs or maybe lesser known media platforms. And there's a big opportunity for smaller publications to kind of bake that into their business model a little bit. It's, It's not very lucrative, but it's exciting to see that kind of validation from, um, from producers and have the potential exposure to a much wider audience. Um, and great, I think great the focus, bragging rights. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I, th- I think just generally like the focus on, you know, more cinematic stories really opens up that door. Um, you know, our Monday through Friday email is not going to get option interest just because it's very news centric. It's focused on information, which is obviously important in its own right. But the, in the Sunday email, you know, we can write about some crazy scam that happened in the seventies where some giant electronics store, uh, where their CEO embezzled all this money. And it's a very cinematic kind of made for TV type of story. And uh, yeah, there, there's a, really a lot of interest there because of that groundswell from streaming platforms. Yeah. So tell me about the podcast, because I think that's fairly new for The Hustle, isn't it? Yeah. The Hustle Daily Show is something we've wanted to do for a very long time. We've had a lot of readers write in and request it over the years. When we were acquired by HubSpot last year, we, we got a really big infusion of resources, uh, both in terms of capital and just staff power and um, HubSpot has this incredible executive producer, Darren Clark, who I really jive with. We're both musicians and he just kind of gets the creative spirit of what we do. So at the tail end of last year, we started brainstorming. We really quickly settled on a shorter format. We knew we wanted it to be around 10 to 15 minutes just because there's so much competition for people's time. Um, and we knew that we wanted it to center around the major headlines and put a premium on information first. And we also knew that we wanted it to blend humor and analysis and be kind of irreverent and quirky and contrarian in some ways. Um, So over the last few months, we've produced probably eight or 10 pilots, put together a launch plan and uh, got it out the door earlier this year. And the reception has been really great. In our first month, we hit number one in the business news category in Apple charts. Uh, Mm. We had almost 200,000 downloads. our goal was like 25,000 the first month. So um, yeah, we're really happy with how it's turned out so far. Has that been quite a change of pace? Because a daily podcast is is quite ambitious to get out the door like that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I we, we have an absolutely incredible team. Uh, I just have to shout out Juliet Bennett-Ryla, Rob Litters, Jacob Cohen, our daily writers. They're amazing co-hosts and they each have a different sensibility. Um Juliet cares a lot about workers' rights. Rob is an expert on pricing models. And Jacob is really locked into like Gen Z culture. And he's just a really funny guy. And they're all very skilled at what they do. And having additional co-hosts allows us to spread the work. Um, so we rotate days. And um, we've put a lot of thought into how to keep this sustainable for all of us. Um, 
so it's it's not just me in there every single day grinding. Um, <laughs> I have a lot of help from a lot of different people on the team. Um, and you did mention there that HubSpot uh, bought the Hustle. Uh, you've been at the Hustle for quite a while. Have things changed much under HubSpot ownership, apart from the resources? You know, like just to be honest, I was I was really scared when this acquisition happened. Um, I I came in wanting to build the hustle into a, into kind of a trusted, credible media brand. And I wanted traditional journalists to take us seriously. And I was worried that getting acquired by a software company would erode some of that trust. But it's totally been the opposite so far. I, th- I think HubSpot has really let us maintain our editorial independence. They've mm. given us a ton of financial support. They've allowed us to expand our team launch new products and get more ambitious with our storytelling. So they've been a really phenomenal partner so far. I think the biggest challenge for me personally is just like adjusting to the larger ecosystem. I've, I've always just been better on smaller teams and now I'm, now I'm at a company with 6,000 people navigating the Slack channels can be a, <laughs> an adventure. Um, <laughs> but but you know what I do here, um, the Sunday email and, and the podcast is kind of still its own island. Um, I work with a very small team. Uh, Brad Wolverton is my incredible editor. Mark Dent, um, another in- incredible investigative reporter we hired recently. So um, it still, in many ways, feels like a small team. Yeah, are we going to see a Sunday edition of the podcast? Yes. Uh, thank you for asking. We we actually <laughs> we. Um, we have plans to launch a Sunday version of the daily um, in the next couple months here. And it's probably just going to be wrapped into our daily podcast. It's not going to be its own podcast, but those episodes will be a bit longer, maybe 30, 45 minutes, and they'll be very storytelling centric. Um, so less newsy and more um, just kind of the same kind of deep storytelling we see in the Sunday email. So the last thing is we ask all our guests mm-hmm. what the last thing is you read or saw or watched that really affected you. All right. I'm going to give you a, just a, such a cop-out answer here. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I feel like lately everything that I've read is deeply affecting me. Um, you know, we've, we've obviously got a horrible situation unfolding in Ukraine. We have inflation. We have ballooning gas prices and uncertainties in the market. And obviously, you know, the pandemic is still looming in the background of everything. So it's been a very tumultuous couple of years. And my struggle is more in trying to be a keen observer and explainer of everything that's going on around me without letting it crush me on a daily basis. Um, <laughs> so so that's, that's just where I am uh, mentally. And I think a lot of other journalists... Um, kind of share in that struggle right now so lots of people have already bought their tickets for our awards publisher podcast awards ceremony in london on the 27th of april if you haven't got yours yet what the hell are you doing get them the closing about what about a week and a half Get to publisherpodcastawards.com slash tickets and buy the last few left. 
there's only a couple of tables left as well so if you want to go and have fun with your team get on it and don't forget you can go to voices.media to sign up for our daily newsletter that goes out five days a week and it contains the four most important stories which we have curated for you so please do go to voices.media to sign up but until next week when we'll be back with another fantastic guest goodbye bye bye <laughs>